You are now listening to the August 28th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have The Seven Signs, A Sermon, and The God of Abraham. First, let's begin with The Seven Signs. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with The Seven Signs. The Signs of Jesus is a program where we look at the miracles of Jesus and consider the signs hidden in these miracles that Jesus intended to impart to us. These miracles and associated signs in general come from the book of John. By understanding the miracles of Jesus as signs, we may believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God and we can have eternal life in him. Today and next week, we will share the sixth sign as recorded in John chapter 9. It involves a story about a man who was born blind. Before we dig into this sign, let us think briefly about how we generally read the Bible. The Bible is broken down by chapters, so naturally that is how we read the Bible. These chapters are organized in such a way that stories and events we read about are easy to distinguish and understand. However, at times, we see chapter breaks come in the middle of a story. And when it does, it causes us to miss the flow of the story. We lose the continuity of the story from one chapter to another. The story of this blind man in John chapter 9 represents one of those cases where continuity appears to be broken as we move from one chapter to the next. John chapter 9, verse 1, starts by saying, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. So if we read this story from chapter 9, verse 1, it makes us think that it is the beginning of the story. One day, Jesus happened to meet this blind man, while in passing. That one day appears as one random day, one of many ordinary days. However, this encounter actually did not occur in one random day. According to theologians, it happened during Jesus' last feast of booths. To understand the full context, we need to go back to John chapter 7, two chapters back from chapter 9. Here are the verses 1 and 2 from John chapter 7. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of the booths, was near. The feast of the booths is one of the three major feasts in Israel. Its celebration lasts for eight days from one Sabbath to the next Sabbath. Also called the Feast of Tabernacle or the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Booths is important in several aspects. First, as reflected in the word booths or tabernacle, the Feast of Booths is the feast in which the people of Israel built booths or tents and spent a week in it in remembrance and thanksgiving. They were remembering and thanking God for caring for them for those 40 years in the wilderness after coming out of Egypt. They reflected on how God fed the people of Israel and how he protected them and led them to the promised land. 
Second, as it was also known as the Feast of Ingathering, the word ingathering suggests gathering and storing of the harvest. Associated with harvest, there are also weather-related and seasonal implications. Around the time of the Feast of Booths, the desert land of Israel enters the rainy season. This is the season when they harvest olives, figs, grapes, and other fruits. Also, the Feast of Booths is usually observed around September. Starting in September in Israel, the day becomes shorter and the night becomes longer. So there are two significant issues that stand out involving the Feast of Booths. First, the people are asking God for water. They are wishing for the rain to come down. Second, the people are waiting for the light to shine in the darkness before the darkness deepens. So during the Feast of Booths, the people give an offering called the drink offering by pouring water onto the altar in the house of God from the pool of Siloam for seven days out of the eight days. The drink offering is usually presented with wine, but at the Feast of Booths, it was offered with water instead as an exception. At that time, every man in Israel gave the drink offering to God every morning during the Feast of Booths. Also, there was a ceremony on the second day of the Feast of Booths in which the house of God was lit brightly. They lit up the lights using four very large candle stands on the court of the women, filled them with olive oil, and kept them lit throughout the Feast of the Booth as they awaited for the arrival of the Messiah. This additional information about the Feast of Booth helps us understand better what happened in John 7 in regards to what Jesus spoke about and how the Jews responded. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. The pond of Siloam is a pond that has the meaning of scent. People gave the drink offering by getting the water from the pond that was sent. But Jesus is telling them to come to him and drink. Why do you think he said that? It's because Jesus is the one who is sent from God and he is the true Siloam. He is indicating that whoever drinks the water that gives life by coming to him will draw from the river flowing of living water. Also, Jesus said the following in chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. To the people who were lighting the four candlestands and were waiting for the true light, the Messiah, Jesus was saying that he was the light that would shine in the darkness. He was proclaiming, that he is the light of the world. He told them that whoever follows him would not walk in the darkness, but would have the light of life. The Feast of Booths 
ends on the Sabbath, on that last day of the feast, Jesus told the people to come to him. That was for anyone to come and drink from him. He also said to follow him because he is the light of the world. Then we see a break in this particular story about Jesus at the Feast of Booths. The very next chapter, John chapter 8, starts with a story of an adulterous woman all of a sudden. On the one hand, maybe since John chapter 7 verse 37 makes a reference to the last day of the Feast of the Booth, it could be that Jesus went into the house of God again the next morning as recorded in John chapter 8 verse 2. In other words, it may be that it was the day after the last day of the Feast of Booth after Jesus said that he is the light of the world. On the other hand, some of the leading Christian scholars propose the break in time sequence between the end of John 7 and the beginning of John 8. They explain that the story of the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 7 verse 53 to John 8 verse 11 had likely been added later. Pastor John MacArthur, an authoritative figure in biblical study in our time, explains this break in time sequence as follows. It is with an almost certainty that the story of the woman who was caught in adultery in chapter 8 was not part of the book of John. This story is inserted in different places in other copies of the book of John. For example, the story is recorded after verse 36 in some copies, after verse 44 in other copies, and even after verse 53 in yet different copies. Moreover, in some copies, the story of the woman caught in adultery were found after Luke chapter 21, verse 38. Showing such variance in the placement of the story and some of the oldest copies not including it must mean that the story of the adulterous woman was not included in the original book of John. Also, the writing style and the tone of the story is different from the rest of the book. In the continuity of chapter 7, verse 52, to chapter 8, verse 12 is broken because of this story. As John MacArthur and other learned Christian scholars suggest, if we skip over chapter 7, verse 53, to chapter 8, verse 11, we find the break in time sequence is no longer there. The story of Jesus' last Feast of Booths connects smoothly from the beginning of chapter 7 to chapter 21. With this observation, we will look at Jesus' sign of healing a man who was blind from birth next week. As you will see, we will be able to understand this particular miracle and its sign in a much more profound way. This concludes today's episode of Signs of Jesus. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is clean. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Feel free to use table of contents. Let me show it to you. So we're going to read all the way through 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's 27 verses, but try to follow along and get the feel of what Paul, who's writing this word here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying. Because if we will realize what the Bible is saying here, it will revolutionize, radically change our everyday lives in ways that will yield fruit for trillions of years in other people's lives. I can't emphasize how important what we are talking about today is, not just for you, but for people all around you, for us to hear what God's Word is saying. So let's hear 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and then think about what God is telling us through it. Verse 1 says, Am I not free? Paul writing, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am for you, for you the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. He's basically talking about his relationship with them and helping starting this church and leading them to Christ. And he writes in verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a, soul, as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? 
For it's written in the law of Moses, and he quotes from the Old Testament, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. For although I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I may win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating in the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others... I myself should be disqualified. All right, so if you're, if you're taking notes, there's a ton in what we just read, but here's the main truth I want to show you in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You might write it down. God calls you to reorient your conscience around how you can best lead people near you and far from you to Jesus. I'm, I'm trying to make this as personal as I can for each of our lives. And I include myself in this. So I need to hear this. So, so David, or insert your name, God calls you to reorient your conscience around how you can best lead other people near you and far from you to Jesus. Now, we got 27 verses in 1 Corinthians 9. What I want to hone in, though, from the start here on, is one word that Paul uses to describe himself, and not just himself, but you and me as a Christian. So for every follower of Jesus, this is the way 1 Corinthians chapter 9 describes you. It's in verse 19, where Paul writes, 
For though I am free from all, I have made myself, now here's the word, a servant to all. And the word Paul uses for servant there was a common word for a slave in the first century. This is Paul saying, as a follower of Jesus, I am a servant, a slave to others, specifically to people around Jesus, in order that I might win more of them. He starts using this language of winning people, and we know he's talking about leading them to Jesus, because when you get down a couple verses later in verse 22, he says, I've become all things to all people, that by all means, whatever it takes, I might save some. Now, this may sound like old school religious language here, like I want to win people, I want to save people. And some of you aren't Christians. This language may actually sound offensive to you. And a Christian wants to save me? And I, and I get it. How this language can found old school, sound old school or even offensive. But think about it this way. Especially if, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, Imagine with me for a moment, just imagine with me that the message of the Bible is true. So even though you may not believe it yet, just imagine for a moment that the message of the Bible is true, that God created all people, including you and me, for the purpose of knowing and enjoying him forever. We were all created to find ultimate meaning and joy and fulfillment in relationship with God. That's what the Bible teaches. But we have all sinned against God. You have, I have, we've turned aside from God and his ways to ourselves and our own ways. And our sin separates us from God. And if we die in this state of separation from God, we will spend eternity separated from God in judgment due our sin, like forever and ever and ever when we die. But the message of the Bible is that God loves us, and God has not left us alone in this state of separation from him. God has come to us in the person of Jesus, who lived a life of no sin, and then died on the cross for the sins of anyone who trusts in his love. And then Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin and the grave so that anyone, anywhere, no matter who you are, what you have done, you can be totally forgiven of your sin, restored to relationship with God, to have everlasting life with him like forever and ever and ever through faith in Jesus. So this is the message of the Bible. So imagine for a moment that that message is true. If that's true, and you're not a follower of Jesus, means you've not placed your faith in Jesus, you're separated from God on a road that leads to eternal judgment, do your sin, which again, I, I know may sound like a stretch at this point, but just imagine that's true. If that was true, wouldn't you want someone to share this message with you? That was true. When you want someone to see their lives saying, I live to serve you with this message. Like, I want to make this message known. I'm going to reorient my life around getting this message to you. Well, of course you would. When you think, okay, if this message is true, what would you think of 
a Christian, if they knew this message and they didn't share it with you? They just focused on what was best for themselves. They spent all their time around other Christians and never shared that with you. You would think, they, they clearly don't love me. They clearly don't care about me. You'd think that's, they, they must hate you in order to keep this message from you. I fear this is how many times, maybe not intentionally, but implicitly, we as Christians are living. Spend all our time around other Christians. And even like we talked about last week, like going back and forth with other Christians. And meanwhile, there's people around us, scores of them, millions of them in this city, who right now are on a road that leads to it, eternal judgment. Like if we believe this message is true, then we will share this message. We'll see ourselves. We, we exist to serve people around us with this good news. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, I love the people around me so much that I'll do whatever I can to love and serve and share this message with them. I'm going to reorient my conscience, my decisions on a daily basis in order to share about eternal life in Jesus with them. This is the posture of a Christian a servant of people without Jesus. And look at how this played out. So what does that mean practically? Well, think about how this played out practically in Paul's life, and we'll start to think about how this plays out practically in our lives. In at least two ways. One, the Bible says, as a servant of people without Jesus, you relinquish your rights in order to lead people to Jesus. Now, when I use that word rights here, let me be clear what I mean, what the Bible means by this word. The Bible's not talking primarily here about rights in a governmental sense, which I'm guessing is where our minds most quickly go, the rights we may have as a citizen. That's not what Paul's talking about here. As important as those rights are, think more in a godly sense, not just in a governmental sense, but a godly sense. The Bible's talking about the rights that are given to us by God. And Paul is saying in this passage, as a follower of Jesus, I relinquish rights that I have from God in order to lead people to Jesus. I mean, let me show this to you. Just look at how many times, particularly in the first half of this chapter, Paul uses the word right or rights. Just circle every time you see it in your Bible. Start in verse 4. Do not have the right to eat and drink. Do not have the right to take along a believing wife as the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living. And you jump down to verse 12. If others share this rightful claim on you. Do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. A couple more, verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor my writing, that one doesn't count, these things to secure any such provision. And then verse 18. What then is my reward? Then in my preaching, I may pray, present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. That's seven different times Paul's talking about his rights. And the point he's making here goes back to what we saw last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul was encouraging, if you remember, Christians not to eat food that have been sacrificed to idols because even though you may have a right to eat that food before God, if doing so would cause other Christians have stumbled in their faith and you don't eat it. So now we come to chapter 9 and verse 4, he starts talking about his right to eat and drink. 
And verse 5, he starts talking about his right to have a wife. In verse 6, he talks about his right to be paid for what he does in serving the church. And he camps out on that all the way down to verse 18. It's basically talking about how leader in the church has a right to financial support from the church. Now, I'll be honest, that feels a little bit awkward for me to talk about, but it's in the Bible, so God's Word teaches the church should support various leaders based on, there's all kinds of pictures we see in 1 Corinthians 9, common practice, like God uses examples of soldiers and farmers and shepherds, even oxen receiving support for their hard work. A pattern that the Bible says the church should reflect. We read, we're reading right now in Numbers in our Bible reading about how God made provision for Levites and people who worked in the temple in different ways. And then in verse 14, the Bible says, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That's a reference to places like Matthew chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, where God called his people to provide for those who were leading in the church in different ways. So if I could just pause just real briefly at this point, based on what the Bible is saying here, I want to thank you as a church family on behalf of staff in this church family who you give generously to support in their work and in their families. I want to thank you and encourage you. Be encouraged. That is a biblical thing to do in right and appropriate ways. But the point Paul's making here is he had this right to financial support from the church at Corinth. After all, he planted this church. But he had relinquished that right for the spread of the gospel in Corinth. Now, it's interesting. There were other times when Paul took financial support from churches. But here in Corinth and some other times, he relinquished that right for the spread of the gospel in that city. And we're not exactly sure why that was the case here in Corinth. But when you look at verse 12, he said, I'm not making use of this right because I don't want to put any obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So apparently, Paul discerned that there might be some obstacle to the spread of the gospel if he was taking financial support in Corinth. So he said, I'm going to relinquish that right. Even though I could take it, I'm not going to do that. So maybe as a contemporary example, and let me be clear, I'm not putting myself on the level of Paul in any way. So please hear my heart in this. But this is one of the reasons why I personally have made the decision not to take any profit from books that I've written up to this point. And that's not me saying that every pastor or every Christian, for that matter, who writes a book should do the same thing. Now, I don't believe it's wrong for me to benefit materially from what I've written. So in that sense, I have a right to be compensated by it. At the same time, I don't believe that would be best for the message I've written in these books. So I've come to the conclusion at this point that it's best for the sake of that message not to take profit from those books. I'm not even saying I won't profit from anything like that in the future. I don't know. The point is, what the Bible is saying here is, we need to look at everything we do through the lens of what is best, not just for the building up of the church, what is best for the spread of the gospel message through my life. And that will inevitably involve all of us relinquishing different rights that we have. So what does this mean? Like relinquish your rights. Like think about the rights in our lives. Think about your life. You have a right to friends, 
marriage, family, safety, security, health, happiness. You have a right to eat, drink, watch, wear, read, study, listen to, say whatever you want. You have a right to organize your schedule and spend your time and choose your career and make your money and use your money, take your vacation, plan your retirement. In the end, you have a right to do what you want to do or go where you want to go and live how you want to live. After all, we're Americans, right? Maybe more than any people in any other country or culture in the world today, we're familiar with our rights. We cling to our rights. That's why this text is so important, especially for us. Because God calls us to relinquish, let go of various rights in order to lead other people to Jesus. That is a very different way to live in this country, this culture, this world. Second, what it means to be a Christian is you rearrange your life in order to lead people to Jesus. To Jesus. You rearrange your life right after Paul talks about being a servant to people without Jesus in order to lead them to Jesus. He says in verse 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. He's saying here, I don't live under the Old Testament Jewish law, but to the extent that I can obey God under that law, then I'll follow that law when I'm around Jewish people. I'll eat what they eat. I'll abstain from what they abstain from if it will help me lead Jewish people to Jesus. And he says in verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I may win those outside the law. So now he's talking about Gentiles, and he's saying, I'll eat something different there. I'll do whatever it takes. As long as it's not sin, obviously he's not going to sin in order to lead people to Jesus, but under the law of God, what does God's word say that's driving everything? But as long as God's word allows this, I'm going to rearrange my life in every way I can to lead Gentiles to Jesus. And then he gets to verse 24 and he starts using this imagery of a runner in a race. Think like an Olympic athlete, Corinth hosted Olympic type games. Listen to the language he uses. It says in verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. In verse 27, he says, I discipline my body. I keep it under control. Now think about an Olympic-type athlete. Read these verses. Think Michael Phelps, right? More medals than any other athlete in Olympic history, 28 of them. If he were a country, he would have more medals than 75% of countries in the history of the Olympics, the summer games. And think about his training regimen to get those medals during peak seasons, swimming 80,000 meters a week, twice a day for hours and hours each day. At one point, trained in the water for 1,800 consecutive days. That's almost five years with no break from the water for a day. And that's in addition to weightlifting and other strength training. And that's in addition to eating 12,000 calories a day for breakfast. It's three fried egg sandwiches with cheese, lettuce, tomatoes, fried onions, and mayo, two cups of coffee, a five-egg omelet, a bowl of maize or grits, three slices of French toast, and three chocolate chip pancakes for breakfast. For lunch, it's a pound of pasta, two large ham and cheese sandwiches on white bread with mayo, and about 1,000 calories worth of energy drinks. 
for dinner. It's another pound of pasta, a whole pizza, a whole meat pizza, and another thousand calories of energy drinks. And that's not to mention the chips, Oreos, and Reese's peanut butter cups he eats throughout the day as snacks. <laughs> Some of you kids are like, all right, I'll take it. Mom, I want to be an Olympian. Chocolate chip pancakes for breakfast, Reese's peanut butter cups throughout the day, and pizza every night. So that's not what uh, the takeaway is from this. But suffice to say, Michael Phelps has rearranged his life around winning medals in the Olympics. And the Bible is God is saying to us right now, if athletes will do that to get a perishable wreath, it's perishable. In the first century, it was a crown of leaves. Today, it's a circular metal. But I'm saying, if they will rearrange their lives for something that will perish, that will fade away, it won't last, then why are we not rearranging our lives for that which will never, ever perish? For a prize that will never perish. And think, well, what's the prize? I wish we had more time to go into biblical teaching about rewards in heaven, but I'll just I'll say it's a twofold picture here in 1 Corinthians 9. One, it's the reward of other people's salvation. So take a crown of leaves or a little metal, and now picture instead of that, picture the faces of people in your family. Picture your friends, your coworkers. People you see every day, picture them experiencing eternal joy in heaven instead of everlasting suffering in hell. My Christian, would you rearrange your life for that? That'll never, ever fade away, ever. And not just that. whole picture here is Paul, even the way he talks about him not wanting to be disqualified, he's talking about the very purpose of his salvation. Are you hearing what God is saying to us? You and I, we have been saved from our sin by Jesus in order to lead other people to be saved from their sin by Jesus. This is why we're here. Right? If God just intended to save us, he'd immediately bring us to himself. We could be free from all the evil and sin and sorrow and suffering in this world. But he's not done that. He's left us here. Not just left us here. He's put us here. He's put you in that school. He has sovereignly put you in that workplace, in that apartment, that home, He's put you in that restaurant this week or that store. He's put us in this city right now. Why? So that we might be servants, pointing people all around us to eternal life in Jesus. This is why we are here. You see how fundamentally important this is? And how so often we can miss it. How there's an adversary who wants us to miss this every single day. Who wants us to get so busy doing all kinds of good things that we forsake that which matters most in eternity. 
I want, I want to give you a picture and challenge you to think through in your life what are two or three practical ways that God is calling you to reorient your conscience around leading people in places like that to Jesus. Now, you might immediately be thinking, what can I do? Well, that's what I want you to think about. And you can, you can pray. You can do what I just, just said to do, and you can wake up five or ten minutes earlier. You can spend some time at the dinner table or before you go to bed doing this. You can participate. You can be a part of what God's doing in North Korea, like right there, or reorient your life around being involved in what God's doing in different places in the world. You can think, well, I have money God's given me. How can I use it for the spread of the gospel in places like that? How can I relinquish my rights to get more stuff in order to get the gospel to places where they haven't even heard the gospel? It's one of the things we talked about at Secret Church. We give billions of resources as the broader church. All kinds of things on buildings and on staff and on programs and all these things. Then we give a tiny percentage of those resources to work around the world. And then what we talked about at Secret Church is even out of those resources that we give around the world, 99% of the resources we give around the world approximately go to places that are green on that map. And we give about 1% of our missions resources to places where the gospel's not yet gone. Like that needs to change. It's got to change. What we were saying is Secret Church, we want to be a part of changing that. We want to be involved in what God's doing in Afghanistan and India and Somalia and Bhutan and Maldives and Pakistan and North Korea. So we can, we can give in different ways. Maybe we can go on a short-term mission trip when those start to open back up. Maybe some of you, God's calling to talk with our global team about getting into that pipeline. How can I learn more about moving to one of those places? Now, I know, let me just put this out there. I know, and even, even mentioning this, putting this on the screen, some will sigh and say, we talk about global missions too much as a church. But brothers and sisters, with over three billion people who have no knowledge of the name of Jesus, we're far from talking too much about how to get the gospel to them. Far from it. You, you, you read, and you see pictures from India and Nepal this last week of makeshift funeral pyres and all these bodies burning of people who haven't even heard the gospel. You won't think, we need to talk less about getting the gospel to them. Why do we talk about getting the gospel to them? And no, this is what Jesus has told us to talk about. Make disciples of all the nations. This is what we're part of. What we get to be a part of, making the greatest news in the world, known to everybody in the world. Yes, we talk about this. And we talk about doing this right here. So now make the connection. Make the connection. We said, okay, if we're going to reach people in Afghanistan with the gospel, we've got to rearrange our lives, relinquish rights. In order to do that, we've got to eat different things. Muslim people groups, they don't eat pork, so... Leave barbecue behind. We're going to dress differently. We're going to speak and learn a different language. Now transfer that same mindset into the way you think about your workplace or your school or your neighborhood. What can I do? What can I do to lead these people to Jesus? What do I need to do? What do I need to do different? So this is where I identify three practical, two to three practical ways that God is calling you to reorient your conscience around leading people near you to Jesus. So now think, what's God calling you to do in your home or your school or your workplace? What intentional steps is God calling you to take with this particular person or that group of people? 
Hey, maybe God's calling you to pray over every single person in your school or your workplace, your neighborhood every day, every week. You start to proactively look for opportunities to share with them. This is what we do as Christians. This is what we do with the greatest news in the world. We relinquish our rights and we rearrange our lives to make this good news known. So, I want you to just, even if you're a Christian, just start thinking, maybe even start writing down two or three practical ways. What's, what's coming to your mind right now? And as you do that, as you do that in your life, I, I want to speak especially to those of you who, who, again, may not be followers of Jesus. I hope that in all this talk about leading people to Jesus, you hear my heart, our heart today, the heart of God today. He loves you. God loves you. So much that he has given his son to die on the cross for your sins. He wants you to have a life in him. He wants you to be saved from your sin forever. He wants you to be forgiven of all your sin and have eternal life in heaven with him. He wants that for you. And so we, as people who worship God, want to be a reflection of his love. We love you. We love you. We want, want nothing more than for you to experience eternal life in Jesus. And we want to give our lives toward that end. I would be remiss if I didn't invite you today, not just invite you, urge you with everything in me, like trust in Jesus today. Experience eternal life in him and then become a part of a people who see ourselves as servants in this world with that good news. So will you bow your heads with me all across this room and other locations? Just bow your heads and would you just just pray right now? If you've never put your faith in Jesus, let this be the moment. Let this be the moment where you just say to God, God, I need you to forgive me of my sins. I today believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I put my faith in Jesus today. I want eternal life with you. This is what it means to enter into a relationship with God, to place your faith in him. Let this moment be that moment. Today be that day. And for all who know eternal life in Jesus, can we just pray, God, help us. God, help us to reorient our consciences, to rearrange our lives, to relinquish rights, to live so that other people might know this good news. God, Remove fear from us. Help us to see with an eternal perspective and to live every day this week toward that end. And God, we pray that the fruit would be many people coming to know you. God, we pray for that. We pray for friends and family members and co-workers and classmates. God, we pray. Neighbors, people we'll meet this week that we hadn't even planned on meeting. I think about one store I was in recently and just clearly you would arrange that meeting and we pray that you would arrange those kind of meetings all over the city this week that people might come to know you and God we pray that you use McLean Bible Church for the spread of this good news to the ends of the earth God we pray for people in Afghanistan and India and Somalia and Pakistan, God, we pray for the spread of this good news through our lives, here and there. Comes to live for what matters forever.
Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602-866-8999. The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello everyone, my name is Terry from the God of Abraham. Last time, we saw a very unfortunate situation. Abraham and Sarah waited 10 years to have a child, but they couldn't have one. They tried to conceive through the female servant Hagar. When Hagar became pregnant with Abraham's child, she despised Sarah. We learn that the word despise comes from the same original word for curse. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God promised Abraham that he would bless those who bless Abraham, and whoever curses Abraham, he would curse. The word used for curse is qualal. Therefore, Hagar became the first person who cursed Abraham, and God had to keep his promise. Today, we'll look at the story of what happened afterwards. First, let's read Genesis chapter 16, verse 5. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Sarah was probably sorrowful. She was sad about not being pregnant, but now her female servant Hagar was pregnant, and Hagar despised her. Sarah was probably sorrowful and felt like it was unfair. Therefore, Sarah rebuked Abraham by saying this insult. Therefore, Sarah rebuked Abraham by saying this insult was caused by him. She said, She is acting this way towards me because you made her think this way. I told you to have an offspring. I didn't tell you to gain a new wife. You didn't explain it to her clearly. God must deal with this problem. It was clearly wrong for Hagar to despise Sarah in the culture at that time. Since Abraham didn't handle the situation well, she wanted God to judge this problem. How did Abraham respond to Sarah's rebuke? Here is verse 6. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so Hagar fled from Sarah. In the culture of that time, Abraham allowed his wife Sarah to do whatever she wanted as the mistress to her female servant Hagar. To say it more clearly, if Abraham had any interest in Hagar, he would have said, Hagar is pregnant. Don't be too harsh on her. Abraham would have tried to be on Hagar's side. However, Abraham made a decision by saying, Sarah, you are my wife and Hagar is your servant. Hagar is not my wife. After receiving permission from her husband, Sarah then acted upon her role as the mistress. The Bible says Sarah mistreated Hagar. 
The Hebrew word for mistreat is ana, and there are many interpretations for this word. It can mean mistreat, and it could also mean torment. It could also mean obey or lower oneself. It could also mean to punish for discipline. This situation is very ironic. In Genesis chapter 15, which is the previous chapter, God gave Abraham a detailed prophecy about the future. God said, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. The word for mistreat is the same word, ana. In the future, Egypt will mistreat Abraham's descendants, but right now, Abraham's wife Sarah is mistreating Hagar, an Egyptian woman. Since Sarah mistreated Hagar, Hagar avoided Sarah and fled. We don't know how difficult Hagar's life became because of Sarah, but the important thing is that it was wrong for Hagar to flee. We may try to understand Hagar and think that she fled because life became so difficult, but the Bible doesn't say that. I'll read verses 7-12. through 12. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. The Bible commands Hagar to go back to her mistress and submit to her. I want us to look at the question the angel of the Lord asks. In verse 8, he asks, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? This is an important question because this pattern of question appears continually in the book of Genesis. God often asks in this way. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 9, God says, Adam, where are you? In Genesis chapter 4, God asks Cain, where is your brother Abel? What have you done? It's very strange how God asks this way. God knows everything, so he's not asking because he doesn't know. Then why is he asking when he knows everything? I believe God wants us to think when he asks this question. Yes, what am I doing here? How did I end up here? If we think like this, we can realize our mistakes. We will realize where we went wrong to end up at this place. God's ultimate purpose is for us to turn from sin. His purpose is not to bring judgment. Let's look at the conversation between Hagar and the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord asks in this way. He doesn't call her Hagar, but Hagar, slave of Sarai. He is confirming Hagar's identity again. You are Sarai's female slave. Where have you come from and where are you going? Why has this happened to you? Think about it. Then Hagar answered, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. 
Hagar's answer contains the truth. By saying she's running away from her mistress Sarai, she is saying that she's a female slave and Sarah is her mistress. Hagar's problem was solved. As a female slave, she didn't submit to her mistress, so she is now running away. If so, how can this situation be restored? How can it be fixed? This is what the angel of the Lord says in verse 9. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. In this way, if we listen to God's voice, reflect upon our mistakes, and think about who we are and how we came here, then we can realize our mistake and be restored. Remember Jesus' parable about the prodigal son? When the son realized where he went wrong and returned back to his father, he was restored and healed. I hope this principle of faith will be rooted in us. If at any time we feel like we're standing on the wrong path and the Lord asks, where are you? I hope we could think about the reason and turn from our mistake and be restored and healed. After telling Hagar what to do, the angel of the Lord prophesied about her son. He said, You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. The name Ishmael means God has listened. It's a good name, but even though Ishmael had a good name, he did not live a good life. It was said that he would be a wild donkey of a man. A wild donkey doesn't live in one place, but wanders here and there. A wild donkey is also strong. Therefore, Ishmael, who was strong, would wander here and there, and when he entered a new village, he would get into fights. He lived in hostility with people and quarreled with them. I'll read verses 13 through 16. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It is still there, between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar born him. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Hagar called the angel of the Lord she met as Lord. It means she saw the Lord. In verse 13, it says Hagar gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. God's name of Eloi first appears here. Hagar listened to God's word and followed it accordingly. She returned to her mistress and lived in obedience. Time passed and she gave birth to Abraham's son. Abraham named his son Ishmael. The Bible says this happened when Abraham was 86 years old. The difference between chapter 15 and 16 in the Bible is just one chapter, but time-wise, 10 years have passed. If Abraham is 86 years old right now, he would have to wait 14 more years to have Isaac. Great faith is needed to wait for God's promise. True faith believes God's promise and waits until the end. I often say faith is to wait. A person who can wait has faith. If one does not have faith, then one cannot wait. It's because one gets anxious while waiting. One gets anxious because one doesn't believe and doubt enters. Like Abraham, we may not fully understand God's promise and try to make that promise happen on our own. 
If we act in such a way, then the results may be like that of Ishmael. Abraham's lack of faith caused endless conflict in the Middle East until now, after thousands of years have passed. As I have continually mentioned, Abraham's faith is still small. He lacked experience and did not think deeply. God made such a person into the father of faith. God is also molding us in this way. We must learn a lesson from Abraham. We don't need to repeat the same mistake. We already know from the Bible that God is trustworthy. None of God's word falls to the ground. Therefore, we can wait in God's promise. Although situations may change, and it seems like God's promise will not happen, His word will surely be fulfilled. That is why we can wait. I hope we can prove our true faith through waiting. I'll see you next time. Goodbye.
so rescue me Oh how infinitely sweet This great love that has redeemed As one we sing We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.